If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. I have some pretty wonderful memories of all the times I visited the fair. My childhood hometown hosts the Benton County Fair every single summer. I went every year from probably the first grade until my senior year of high school. In my earliest years, I would go with my mom and spend a couple of hours on the rides, meet up with friends, and settle in to have fair food and listen to live music. Eventually, the fair included performances of my singing and dancing group, Sunshine Generation, which you can Google, and horse shows with 4-H. And then fifth grade hit, and I was allowed to go solo with my friends. Throughout my middle school years, it was a very coveted time in my life. My mom would send me with some money and I would spend the evenings with my best friends, riding the zipper with my crush, seeing who could do the most rides without getting sick, flirting with people from other schools, and of course, freaking each other out with creepy stories of carnies, fatal accidents on rides, and kids that went missing. Little did I know at the time that those creepy stories weren't necessarily untrue. In the Pacific Northwest, we have many mysterious disappearances, in particular, missing children. Two notorious missing children have eerie similarities between their cases, though they are completely unrelated. Both kids were 14 years old, both spoke to their mother on the phone right before going missing, and both disappeared from the local fair. Today, I'd like to tell you about the disappearances of Jeremy Bright, who went missing in 1986, and Misty Copsey, who went missing in 1992. 14-year-old Jeremy Dolan Bright was a friendly, popular, and athletic kid. He had a 9-year-old sister, Esty, a mother, Diane, and a stepfather, Oli, whom he was very close with. But in the middle of his 8th grade year, his mother and stepfather decided to separate. Jeremy and his sister lived in Grants Pass with their mother, while their stepfather, Oli, lived in Myrtle Point. Divorce is a struggle at any age, but also becoming the new kid at school in your middle adolescence is a gamble in the social sphere. Typically, boys in their early teens are hitting their growth spurt and experiencing changes in their voice, and this time of puberty is often accompanied with all the awkwardness. But Jeremy was a budding basketball star, and he was incredibly friendly and well-liked. There were some hiccups in the transition. His grades slipped as he found his place in the new school, but soon enough, eighth grade was over and summer began. Jeremy's mother, Diane, wanted to ensure that his transition into high school went as smoothly as possible. She planned a big shopping trip for the two of them. They picked out button-down shirts, Levi jeans, brand new black Nikes, and she ensured that he had everything he needed to make a splash in high school. He was confident it was going to be a good year and that he would likely make the basketball team. In the summer of 1986, a few weeks after his shopping spree with his mother, Jeremy and his sister made a trip to visit their stepfather in Myrtle Point for a week. Myrtle Point is the type of small town where everyone knew each other and where kids roamed around freely when they weren't in school. 
While there, the kids would spend time with their friends and family, and Jeremy would earn extra cash working in his family's restaurant while they prepared for its opening. This visit was particularly special as the fair was in town, so of course Jeremy and his sister would be spending much of their time there. On Thursday, August 14, 1986, Jeremy took his sister Esty and her friend Sarah to the Coos County Fair, which was hosted in Myrtle Point every year. When they got there, he purchased them an all-day pass for the rides, and at around 1.30, they separated. Esty would stay at the fair with Sarah, while Jeremy had planned to leave the fair to go back to the restaurant, the Colony, to pick up money, and then he would return to the fair and meet his friend Johnny. Jeremy and Esty had plans to meet back up at the Ferris wheel at 5 p.m. At around 4.45 that day, Diane spoke to her son who called her from a payphone outside of McKay's Market, which is about a nine-minute walk from the fairgrounds. He told her that his sister was at the fair with Sarah and that he was on his way to go pick her up, and she reminded him that she would pick him and his sister up on Saturday so that they could return to Grant's Pass. 5 p.m. came and went, and Esty waited at the Ferris wheel for her brother, who never showed up. Esty and Sarah ended up walking home after waiting as long as the two could. At the time, this wasn't concerning. Again, this was a small town where everyone knew each other, and the kids walked around freely in the summer. It wasn't until her mom came to pick them up on Saturday that she realized it was serious. Several witnesses claim to have seen Jeremy and Johnny at the fair together. However, the time is unknown. It's documented that though Esty never saw Jeremy that evening, he did stop at his grandmother's restaurant at around 9.40 p.m. While there, he exchanged hellos with his grandmother and stepfather and got a little bit of extra cash. This was the last time there was a confirmed sighting of Jeremy. Diane got into town on Saturday, two days later, to pick up Esty and Jeremy, and that's when the seriousness of the situation became clear. When she got to Ole's house, she discovered that Jeremy's keys, wallet, and watch were all left at the house. She believed it to be very unlike him to leave those things behind. The family asked around to see if anyone had seen Jeremy. Several people noted that they had seen Jeremy on Thursday, but no one saw him on Friday or Saturday morning. Once his mother reported him missing Saturday night, the chief of police kind of dismissed it and didn't even file an official report. He believed he had run away with the fair. The Myrtle Point police assumed that, because of the divorce, Jeremy likely ran away. His family adamantly disagreed, and he was incredibly protective of his sister. They didn't think he would ever leave her. The fair packed up on Sunday, August 17th, so Diane went back to the police to report him missing and was told by the chief of police she needed to wait that bullshit 72 hours. At this point, the only attention that Jeremy was getting is his own family putting up missing posters all around town. After Jeremy had been missing for five days, the first article was written about his disappearance. It was titled, Youth is Missing, and wasn't even featured on the front of the paper. It was clear that no one really took a missing 14-year-old boy seriously. Three months later... The case was transferred from the Myrtle Point Police to the Coos County Sheriff. So really, three months were entirely wasted. And those are the three months that mattered the most. As you can imagine, in a small town suffering a major tragedy, there were several rumors regarding what happened to Jeremy circulating. The first rumor was built upon, if not encouraged, by the police. Their initial reaction that he ran off with the carnival soon turned into Jeremy was abducted by a carnival worker. 
In later years, people even claimed that they spotted him working for a carnival in Florida, and that was not the case. Was there ever any report or reasoning given why the stepdad didn't say anything for two days? Or was it just that he was so uh, freewheeling that they yeah. just didn't know where he was? Well, he he had a irregular schedule. So he was the kind of person who got up well before the kids oh, got up in the okay. morning. I think he was like a logger or something. And, you know, it is the so summer in a small didn't town. cross, it's like, oh, he's just out and about and right. I'm in bed before he's even home for and dinner. And at first that's like something you could really gasp at. But then I think back to seventh grade summer, I hardly saw my mom. Oh, I yeah. would go change and then I would walk all over town, hang out with friends' house. Yeah. I'd maybe call, maybe, you know? Yeah. So, so you could see how one parent could miss that, especially a 14-year-old. Like, right. Then there were the more unbelievable rumors that Jeremy was accidentally shot while swimming at Looney Pond or the Coquille River. The locations in question were known party spots. According to the rumor, three teenagers were playing around with a gun and accidentally or on purpose shot Jeremy. Perhaps this isn't unbelievable because an anonymous jail source went on to share details of that night that aligned with the idea that three teenagers were shooting at Jeremy as target practice and accidentally shot him. I don't know how target practice turns into accidental. but uh, Yeah, that's wild. He went on to say that Jeremy didn't immediately die, but that the teens took him to a cabin nearby to attempt to nurse him back to health. Authorities searched this area, found the exact cabin, but never located Jeremy's remains or evidence that he was there, according to the rumor. I don't know, because something comes up later. We'll see. Another popular rumor was that Jeremy attended a local party and was given a beer that had been laced with drugs. It's believed that Jeremy had a heart murmur, which could have killed him after ingesting unknown stimulants. In the variations of the died-at-a-party rumors, there were some consistencies, mainly that three local teenagers were involved. There were three to four people police identified as persons of interest, and they eventually communicated that they believed Jeremy's disappearance was due to foul play, and they also believed it highly likely he died on the same day he went missing. Though some of the rumors may sound far-fetched, there were a few sightings that alluded to those scenarios. If you recall, I mentioned that Jeremy planned to meet up with his friend Johnny at the fair. Johnny's little sister Cecilia had witnessed something strange and brought the information to the police. The night that Jeremy went missing, Cecilia was hanging out at her sister's apartment. The two were leaving the apartment at around midnight when a resident named David Steinhoff entered the building and appeared to be covered in blood. Cecilia says that when they asked the man what happened to him, he looked down, laughed, and said, this happened hours ago, and then he just entered his apartment. She went on to tell police about an hour after seeing the man with the bloody shirt, Johnny came into his sister's apartment and was visibly upset. After detailing this information, Cecilia was told that David had been in a fight and that the scratches he got from the fight caused the blood, but she claims there was far too much blood to have been caused by a few scratches. And all of this information came like the three months later. Uh, it's unclear if it was right away or later. I imagine it's when they finally realized, oh, there might it's be actually, foul play. I'm going to start talking to imagine witnesses. Imagine if they had tackled that, you know, right on away. that Saturday. I know. Esty told police that she saw her brother that day at the fair get into a truck with Terry Lee Steinhoff. He was Jeremy's former babysitter and the cousin of David Steinhoff. Other witnesses corroborated the sighting. Both Steinhoff men were questioned by police and were considered persons of interest. However, 
neither became an official suspect. Terry Steinhoff's property was searched, but nothing linking him to Jeremy's disappearance was uncovered. There were also likely two other people involved, one other man named Hoyt Richardson and another person who is unnamed. This wasn't the last time Terry Steinhoff would be interviewed by police. He was convicted of murdering a 32-year-old woman named Patricia Morris in 1988. Apparently, he tried to make a move on her. She denied him, so he stabbed her in the throat several times and then dumped her body over a bridge into some bushes where she eventually died. He was busted thanks to one of his own relatives that told police where they could find his pocket knife, and it was likely the one used to kill Patricia. He told police that if he ever got out, he would kill that relative. Super nice guy. So he ends up going to prison, and while he's there, he overdoses on drugs in 2007 and dies. The Steinhoff family was known to be bad news, the type of people who struck fear in the residents of the entire town. His father, Stan, was asked if he had any information, and he said he would never rat out his son and he would take what he knew with him to the grave. Another super nice guy. Wonder where the son got it. Jeremy's friend Johnny really struggled after his disappearance. He struggled with drugs and alcohol and was homeless for the last 24 years of his life. He died in 2011 and was found under a bridge in San Jose, California. Johnny never said anything that suggested he knew what happened to his friend, but one of his family members was giving him a ride to Roseburg one day, and they claimed that he looked out the window and said, if they want to find Jeremy, they should look up there. I imagine it was a hill or something. The same year that Johnny died, 25 years after Jeremy went missing, Jeremy's family held a memorial service for him. Friends and family released more than a thousand balloons featuring his picture in honor on the very same baseball field where he used to play. Jeremy's case has gone unsolved for 35 years, but tips are still being shared with police. One lead in 2018 suggested that Jeremy's body was in a well in Coos County. The well was searched, but there were no remains discovered. This is another one of those cases where someone out there knows something and it's not going to be solved until they tell someone. Jeremy's mother desperately wants to close this chapter of her life. She believes he has been dead ever since the day he went missing and that his body is somewhere in Coos County. In the days immediately following his disappearance, his mother became plagued with terrible nightmares and these soon turned into a battle with alcohol addiction. She still struggles with that every day. At this point, justice is the last thing on her mind. She just wants to bury her child. An anonymous tip telling them where to find his body would suffice to end her nightmare. Jeremy Bright was six feet tall and weighed 140 pounds when he went missing. He has brown hair, green eyes, a scar on his forehead, a scar under his nose, and a mole on his chin. He was last seen wearing a black windbreaker jacket and black Nike shoes size 13 with red shoelaces. He also had a broken index finger. Today, Jeremy would be 49 years old. So let's preface this discussion we're going to have by saying everything I'm about to say is circumstantial, unsubstantiated, and basically what I've personally gathered from reading these cases, this case and all, okay. all of the different points of view. So here's what I don't know. I don't know if Terry Steinhoff's property is the same property that was mentioned being the cabin in the woods that was mm. searched by police. Now, if it is, I think the rumor 
that is at the top of my list is that Jeremy went with Terry in his truck because he knew him. They maybe went to party. He got money from his stepdad and then went to the party. And he either got injured or met his demise at the party, possibly due to a gunshot because of the amount of blood that was seen on Terry's cousin's shirt. And I think they probably tried to save him, moved his body. But again, there's no evidence, right? That's just... I think it's very interesting that the two more solid witnesses both said three men. I yeah. think that it was is three to something. four in every single rumor. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. And also the point of him going to the restaurant to get money. Did he see Terry along the way and is like, oh, I'm just running to the restaurant to get some money. Who knows how much he got and then got back in the car. And this guy, you know, yeah. uh, has a tendency to maybe not make good choices. And so maybe the money was part of it. Or maybe Terry was like, hey, come hang out and do you have money for alcohol yeah. or something? Let's go. Because like, who knows? He could have gotten like a hundred bucks, which back then, yeah, people have killed for less. So. And he totally trusted him. He knew right. him very well, grew right. up with him. Even though he comes from a bad family, Jeremy was always, I, I assume, treated well right. by him because he was his babysitter. But that is interesting that he would be his babysitter when the whole town is like, yeah, they're bad news. Yeah. It's just very fishy, mm. but it does make sense. Like everyone says, we know who did it. We know right. the four guys. I couldn't find the fourth name, but there was someone who posted online. They're from the area. They know the people right. and they're like, this is what happened. And I did read online from that person that a gun and a bloody sleeping bag are in police possession. They're, that was just never published. So I don't oh. know if we really know that. Maybe they haven't run it yet or there's no match or. or yeah. Or they're keeping it close to them. Yeah as the like last thing the killer would know. But what if they did search his cabin and found the bloody sleeping bag in the gun? Right. So I I feel like of all the scenarios, that makes the most sense to me. But again, there's no real evidence that's been released and to you us. And you know, I think that happens more often than people realize where it feels like maybe investigators haven't done any work or haven't gotten anywhere or have no answers when really they're sitting on a mountain of information but the DA is like, you don't have enough to go with. Right. And so then you can't go after them. And, you know, you could name them as a person of interest or something or a suspect. But outside of that, if you don't have the DA being like, yeah, we've got it. Yeah, there's nothing you're you can just do stuck. As, a, as a sheriff. So it's very possible that they could have evidence saying, yep, it's clearly these guys, but it is not enough to go to trial. So Yeah, and that makes me question if the gun and the sleeping bag are in their possession because those are things that would have been found probably in someone's property mm -hmm. with the blood that could be tied to him so then they could have a case. And you would think it would be a gun because if he, if the guy had, had blood on him blood. and said, well, we were shooting, and then another rumor was, oh, there was target practice, it's like, yeah, there you go. And this was covered in Unsolved Mysteries years ago. Oh, okay. And they showed the scenarios. But what, what was interesting is they didn't involve the Terry scenario in the truck. And that, mm. I think, must have came out later. Oh, yeah. Um, because also his sister was nine. And I don't think police really were listening to her. Right. But she said around 1.30 that day when they separated, she saw him get into the truck. And there were a few people that said they saw him get confrontational with two men at the oh. fair before he left. Could that have been Terry and David? Right. I'm not sure. But it's it's one of those cases that I just feel like the whole town probably knows. Yeah. And they're hiding behind the rumors and nobody oh, made a move. That would be so maddening as a family member 
it's one thing to not know what happened at all, and it's one thing to wonder who did it and, and where your loved one is, but to have it feel like everyone kind of has a general consensus mm-hmm. that this is what happened and you're just like bumping into them at the grocery store, mm-hmm. that would be torture. And his mom moved back from Grant's past so that she could be close to the investigation. Uh, so can you imagine just like putting yourself back into the, yeah. all those rumors? And I she mean, said, it truly uproots your entire life. Well, she said every rumor she heard, she would have a new nightmare. And right. the one thing she doesn't want to believe from the rumors is that he didn't die automatically and was like suffering for oh. two days. Because that would be horrible because he's be probably awful. getting blood poisoning and slowly dying. Right. And uh, I can't imagine that agony. Yeah feeling every day that's awful well i hope for her sake and for all of his family and friends they get some sort of closure answer something if anyone has information on jeremy bright's case you're asked to contact the coos county sheriff's office at 541-396-3121 One of the benefits of the pandemic and the quarantine we survived is that a lot of people discovered their own creative outlet. True. I myself even started a new Golden Girls podcast, Always Be My Sisters. It's been a fun and easy way for me to be creative and share mine and Josh's goofiness with the world. And for every person who did start a podcast, there are probably five others who thought about it and never made the jump. Our advice? Do it. Everyone has a point of view and there is literally a niche for every interest. The hardest part of getting started is finding the right host. Well, not in our case. No, not that kind of host. A podcast platform. That's why we were so excited when we found Red Circle. Whether you are brand new and looking to start your show or you're ready to move on from your stale old podcast host, Red Circle is the place to be. The features are rad. When we were new to the platform, we took advantage of the built-in promo swap feature, which allows you to connect with other podcasts to help promote each other's show. They also make it so easy to add an advertisement, upload episodes, or read analytics, even for a non-tech person like myself. Not to mention, they make getting advertisers so much easier. We struggled for over a year on our old podcast host platform and didn't win a single ad. Two weeks with Red Circle and we had advertisers. If you are interested in making the plunge to podcast host software that is easy to use, attractive, and constantly improving, check out our show notes for a link to sign up for Red Circle. You can also find a link on our promo codes tab at murderintherain.com. Six years after Jeremy Bright disappeared, another 14-year-old would go missing in Washington State. This time, it was a girl named Misty Copsey, and though the cases were entirely unrelated, they do have eerie similarities. Misty Copsey was born in 1978 to parents Diana and Buck Copsey. The couple divorced shortly after her birth, and her mom had primary custody. Misty and her mother spent much of her formative years living in a trailer park called Green Meadows, but they recently moved to a duplex in Spanaway, Washington. Despite the move, Misty was still spending a lot of time in Green Meadows that summer visiting her friend Trina. Misty was an eighth grader at Spanaway Lake Junior High and was very well liked. She played multiple sports, softball, volleyball, and basketball, and excelled at math. 
She was considered a good girl. And yes, she got good grades and didn't date boys, a.k.a. wasn't sexually active. But really, I think people remember her that way because she was so friendly, energetic, and was genuinely a nice person people wanted to be around. She still did typical teenager things like have people over when she wasn't supposed to, lie to her parents now and then, and get in fights with her mom. On September 17, 1992, 14-year-old Misty Copsey planned to attend the fair with her friend Trina Beverd at the Puyallup Fairgrounds in Washington. This almost didn't happen because Trina's parents didn't want her going out without supervision. But between Trina's convincing and Misty's mom telling them she would drive them home, they ended up letting Trina go. I have to imagine these two were incredibly excited for the fair, and I'll tell you why. I saw that the headlining act that evening was Huey Lewis and the News. Oh, yeah. And yes, they are a little bit technically before our time. But can you imagine being on the rides and vibing to some Huey? And the News? Forget it. I know. That's like ultimate 80s dream. Now, I'm sure that excitement was palpable. Diana dropped the girls off at the fairgrounds at 3 p.m. and gave them a reminder to stay out of trouble and told Misty she loved her. There was one kink in their plans. Misty's mother, who was an in-home caregiver for an elderly woman with Alzheimer's, would be working that night and had not actually intended to pick them up. She just wanted the girls to have fun, so she helped out by comforting Trina's parents. The plan was that the girls would actually ride the bus home. And after enjoying a wonderful day together, they left to go to the bus stop and unfortunately missed the 8.40 p.m. bus. Misty called her mom at 8.45 to tell her that she missed the bus and to see if maybe she would pick her up. Her mother couldn't leave work, so she advised her to try calling someone else that they both trusted. Misty suggested she could call her friend Reuben Schmidt to drive the girls home. He actually lived uh, in the trailer park she lived in growing up. But Reuben was not one of her mother's favorite people, and she told her, absolutely not, find someone else. Misty had an electronic pocket device. Now, I don't think a lot of people know what that was. I don't even really know, but it was like a little like wallet sized device that just held phone numbers and addresses. Do you remember oh, those? Oh, yeah, I had one like that. You did? It, it was like an electric uh, like address palm, book. Is it like a Palm Pilot? Kind of. It was like, yeah, it was more, um, yeah, you could just click through. And it would just beep, 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 like almost like a calculator. Yeah, and it had little and icons. Could, yeah, and it's you could much, click much more similar to, I think, a, a calculator than yeah, anything Yeah, and else. you would just click through and be like, you know, kind of, uh, what's it called in an apartment? I picture the buzz-in thing in an apartment oh, yeah. where you have to click through the names and it comes up. Mm -hmm. It looked like that, and it was about high quality as that. So her mom had given her one of those, and she had it with her. And her mom said, just go through that and see if someone we both know will drive you home. Misty's mother then asked her to call her back to confirm once she found a ride, but Misty never called. When Diana tried to reach Misty at home later that night, no one answered. Now, she wasn't alarmed initially. Her assumption was that Misty was avoiding her because she probably did get a ride from Reuben. Reuben oh, was like, I don't want to tell you that right. I'm getting a ride with him, but he is available, but I am home. Yeah, that would make sense. Now, at this time, Misty and her friend Trina part ways. Trina told police that she walked home and gave Misty some change for the bus. However, it's thought that Misty started to walk the eight miles home after she was unable to find someone to drive her home. There were two sightings of Misty that night. One was at 9.20 p.m. when she approached a bus driver in downtown Puyallup for a ride. He declined as he was ending his shift for the night. 
The last sighting was at 10 p.m. while she walked westbound on Highway 512. When Diana got home from work the next morning, she expected to find Misty in her room waiting to be woken up to have a fight over her ride home with Reuben. But Misty wasn't there. She called police to report her daughter missing, and after telling the dispatcher that her daughter didn't come home from the fair the night before, she was told she would have to wait 30 days (gasps) because, quote, it sounded like a runaway case. Like Jeremy Bright, valuable time was thrown away while police initially assumed she was another runaway teen. I love that just because a a child hits double digits, they're like, well... They're running away. 30 days. That is disgusting. And like you had said on the other case about the waiting the 48 hours and the 72 hours, for anyone listening, that is not true anymore. You call right. If you know someone is missing, you call right away. You don't have to wait for anything. And hopefully they won't tell you to wait a month. That is unbelievable. I know. Especially those circumstances. She was calling me to get a ride on the bus. She went to the fair. Like it wasn't. Oh, we'd been fighting for months and she disappears sometimes. Oh, my God. I know. It's I read that like three times, like 30, 30 days, 30 minutes, 30 hours. The police's initial thoughts that Misty was a runaway was encouraged by the rumors that were rampant in school. Police ended up speaking to two of Misty's classmates who gave false information when questioned. One girl, Jill Weinger, claimed to have seen Misty in the crowd at a Color Me Bad concert. The band played at that same fair on September 21st. Another classmate, Misty Matthews, claimed that Misty had called her shortly after her disappearance. When pressed, it came to light that the girl on the phone never claimed to be Misty, and she didn't even remember what day and time she had called. Now, however, the police did use this information to deprioritize the case and actually took Misty off of the NCIC <gasps> missing person list and just dubbed her a runaway. She's still missing, even if she's run away. No but one they knows were like, location. oh, no, she's just hiding. Oh, it gets worse. <sighs> now, in later years, Misty Matthews admitted that she desperately wanted to be part of the cool kids because Misty was. She just really wanted to be Misty's friend, and that's why she brought it up. Like, she wanted to be cool that Misty would have called her. She wanted to be the new Misty. Yep. Wow. That That was a hot name that year, I will say. (sighs) And I feel so bad for the mom because she couldn't get her. So you know that regret has been weighing on her because I'm sure this case doesn't end well. And that bus driver... Like, you're just like, I'm just finishing my shift. No, oh, no, yeah. No. Every and you're carrying single... that for the rest of your I life. I mean, Trina, leaving, separating. The front. I... Um, yeah, the mom. I mean, everyone probably the has that moment. The only people I moment. don't feel bad are the cops, and I hope they didn't sleep ever again. Diana began calling and visiting anyone she could think of who might have seen or spoken to Misty. No one gave her any indication that they had seen Misty since Thursday evening. So six days later... She went to Pierce County Sheriff's Department, who handled all the missing persons cases, and she filed a report with them. And though they actually did file a report, they instructed Diana that she would have to work with the Puyallup police because it was their jurisdiction. And those were the same people that told her to wait 30 days. And mind you, they still took her off of NCIC. Police had issues with considering Diana as a reliable source of information. They ended up looking into the family, which helped them validate their suspicion that she was a runaway. 
Not only did Diana have issues with alcohol, she had a record of DUIs and a conviction for welfare fraud in 1985. And Misty's own father suggested that the mother and daughter had plenty of issues and fought all the time. They also learned that a month before Misty's disappearance, Diana had filed a missing persons report for her. Now, Diana explained that it was a false alarm. She had thought her daughter was missing, but then later found her safe in her bedroom. The problem was she was so embarrassed. She never told police about the mistake. So they still had that on file. And that's why they were like, don't listen to this lady. She just lost her kid again. Yeah. Okay. But then so after an a couple hours or a day... Can we not look at it and say, oh, this must be different this time? Yeah. And here's the other thing that gets me. Now, when she went to Pierce County, they faxed a sheet over to Puyallup and said, hey, she filed this. And on it, they said, I know this seems straightforward, but I just feel like something's off. Like someone in that police department said it feels off and they still disregarded it for weeks. And guess what? She's still a child who ran away. And a very childlike child. She like is not legally old enough to make her own decisions so why is it if a kid runs away it's like well that's what they've decided let's let them loose like Like looking at her and trina pictures of them they are definitely children and they are around these older boys like i would really everyone's red flag should be going off clearly diana wasn't getting the support she needed from the police so she decided she would start investigating and interviewing people on her own She starts interviewing the people in Misty's life to see if she can get additional information to help locate her. One of the first people she called was Misty's friend, Reuben Schmidt. Reuben was four years older than Misty, and Diana had suspected that he had been grooming her. Now, suspecting he was bad news, she decided one night to listen to one of their phone calls, and she overheard Reuben tell Misty, quote, I get horny just looking at you. Ever since that day... He was someone she highly discouraged Misty from interacting with. So as Diana suspected, Misty did call Ruben to ask for a ride. He told her that he declined giving her a ride because he didn't have gas. However, Diana called again to double check his information and ended up speaking to his roommate, 15-year-old James Tinsley, a 15-year-old roommate. Can we just, yeah. Yeah, that was jarring. So 15-year-old James Tinsley. James told a different story. He basically said Reuben and his uncle did go pick Misty up that night. Diana later called Reuben again and told told him what she had learned from James. And he said, no, my roommate's mistaken. I never went to get her. Instead, I went to a party with my friends. Now, Diana took this information to police and continued her own investigation. By December of 1992, police put Misty back on the missing person list noted as missing under suspicious circumstances. I'm not really sure what triggered this. I mean, a lot happened in the coming months, but I can't tell what happened between November and December that made them go, oh, yeah, this is probably Once foul again, play. maybe they just came across that one piece of evidence that they didn't share to be like, oh, yeah, this is serious. Right. Not long after that, a news station, Como TV, finally picked up Misty's story. The broadcast did bring in tips. It was during this time that police received the information that a woman had spotted her walking at 10 p.m. that night. So that was the verified. um, There were two witnesses that they verified. That came from a news finally running a story on her. 
And they think that the only reason they did that is because at this time, and we'll talk about this in a minute, the Green River Killer was oh, running rampant, right, right? Right in that area. So anyone who's a, a runaway or a sex worker is a possible victim, right? So I think that's the only reason they ran the story was it was an easy way to talk about both. Yeah. On February 7th, 1993, four months after Misty's disappearance, rolled up clothing was found in a ditch near Highway 410 and Wyco Road. The clothing found was Misty's distinctive stitch jean she borrowed from her mother the night she went missing, a pair of her underwear, a sock, and her brown suede shoes. Later that month, Misty's hairbrush was located a half mile from where her clothes were found. Now, police questioned the reliability of these belongings they found because the search that recovered them was actually run by her mother and a man named Corey Bober. Corey Bober was a bit of an eccentric man. He was on the obsessive side when it came to true crime, relatable. But in particular, he was obsessed with serial killers. Described as a bit of a recluse, he spent much of his time researching cases of missing and murdered women found in Washington. He was fixated on someone he thought was a serial killer. So police were really well aware of this guy like he constantly called them with clues and tips and they were like okay you need to stay out of our business like let us do this job but he was um kind of inserting himself onto the green river killer task force because he didn't think they were doing a good job and he's like yo 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 i got all the information you need i mean in all fairness based on what you've told us today he was not wrong well and we did that case and there were a lot of screw-ups in that case yeah Bober had a record as well, two arrests for possession and dealing of pot, and he's not someone police just found reliable in general. Now, despite police frustrations with him, he continued to do his research. There's nothing stopping him from doing that. He had focused on 200 different cases, and he would keep records. He had autopsy reports, files of dates, names, and locations. He even made his own connections with people working on these cases. Now, even though people thought he was kind of crazy, I guess you would say, he actually did have some reasonable predictions and suggestions. For one, he is one of the reasons that the Pierce County Medical Examiner's Office had to admit that they lost track of someone's remains because he figured it out through his research and called them out. So that's good probably for an, him. They probably didn't like him because of that as well. Well, if you keep saying, if you say that lady's an alcoholic and that guy's a kook. You don't have to be held responsible. Yeah, and you'll go back and forth on this guy. Like, he has a lot to contribute, but then he also takes away a lot. And I think he wants to be famous, and we'll get there. He also had a partially correct prediction prior to Misty's disappearance based on his research. He had even gone to the police to warn them of his discovery. The bodies of two teenage girls were found near Highway 410 just outside Enumclaw, and this was within two years of each other. The first girl was found in 1990 and was identified as 15-year-old Kimberly DeLong from Sumner, Washington. She was last seen shopping at the Hi-Ho Shopping Center in Puyallup in 1988. The second girl was 14-year-old Anna Lee Chibitnoy from Puyallup, and I probably botched her name, but I cannot find it online anywhere. So I apologize. She was found in 1991, just 100 feet from where Kimberly's body was found. 
She was also last seen at the Hi-Ho Shopping Center in 1990. Bober was the one that picked up on a pattern here. The girls were killed two years and one month apart, and that's what worried him. After their discovery, Corey suggested to police that another girl of similar age would likely go missing and end up murdered in September of 1992, and her body would likely be found in the same location. So when his mother showed him a flyer of Misty Copsey in 1992, it confirmed that he was on the right track and that there was likely a serial killer on the prowl. Enumclaw, near where the bodies were discovered, is 30 minutes from Puyallup, and to get there, you have to take Highway 410. Bober called the number on the flyer and was eventually connected to Diana. From there, an interesting relationship would form. In their conversations, Bober discussed primarily two things, the Green River Killer, which was his latest true crime fixation, and two, he believed the person who took Misty killed her, and that was the same person who killed the two teens found on Highway 410. Furthermore, he believed her body would be found near there and that the man who killed them was the Green River Killer. He also believed that the Green River Killer was a man named Randall Oziger, and this was a man who was a convicted child rapist from Puyallup that he had been researching and investigating for months. Now, as our listeners know from one of our earlier episodes, the Green River Killer was actually Gary Ridgway, and he was apprehended years later in 2001. But Bober was, and still is adamant, that Oziger was responsible for the Green River killings and that Gary Ridgway was framed. Oh. Yeah. So when you think he's being helpful, then you're like, wait a minute. I mean, it would be interesting to hear why he believes that of this other guy. Well, if you're interested, (gasps) check out YouTube called Green River Killer. His username is G-E-R-E-N-D-A-Z-E-E. He made a whole video about why he thinks the Green River Killer was framed and that This guy, Randall Oziger, is the one who did it. Fascinating. Police warned Diana that Bober was not going to be helpful and that he would disrupt the case. But seeing as how no one was helping her, she opted to work with him because at least one person seemed to care and believe that her daughter wasn't a runaway. But it appeared that the police were right because six weeks after Misty's disappearance and just weeks into working with him, Diana filed a restraining order against him. In the order, she cited that he regularly harassed her, calling her daily to tell her that her daughter was dead. But then another two weeks later, she rescinded it because, again, he was the only person willing to help her. Oh, what a horrible place to be in. Over the course of a few months, the two of them planned two searches. The first search was fruitless, but the second one helped them discover Misty's belongings. I will note that Bober had actually convinced someone working on the Green River Killer investigation, possibly a medical examiner, to disclose to him one of the locations of where a victim was recovered. This helped him refine his search area. The second search took place on the north side of Highway 410. The search party consisted of 12 people, and among them was Bober, Diana and her sister Deborah, Al Hensley, a man whose daughter was found murdered in 1991, and his nephew Jeremy, who was a 14-year-old Boy Scout. That Boy Scout was the one who actually found Misty's jeans. Misty's items ended up being located about 10 minutes away from where the two teen bodies had been located. And I do have a map in our episode blog. Bober believed 
the clothing had been planted by Misty's killer to taunt the police. Now, he thought this because he publicly announced exactly where they were going to be searching. He was kind of like setting a trap. But police... They did not believe the murderer planted the evidence. They believed Diana or Bobert may have planted it there. Yeah, because was there, did the clothing have any like blood or anything like that? Or could they have come from the house? We'll talk a little bit about what they found, but they were suspiciously in the open. So it was in a Mm -hmm. ditch. They were rolled up, but they weren't like, they were very muddy, but they weren't under anything. Like how could they have been sitting there for a long period of time? And the Boy Scout had a walking stick and, and he like hit it. And there it was, like, out in the ditch. So police were like, that's weird. You guys organized the search. And now he's saying, oh, I was right. I was right. right. It just is a little Especially weird. for someone seeking fame in that regard. Right. So there was a ton of speculation that Bober was more interested in proving the police wrong and that he was right than actually finding Misty. So to them, it would make sense that he would consider planting evidence where he had already told police they would later find a body. Now, despite that, they did send the clothing to forensic testing. So they didn't just like use it as another reason to not test it. So that's that's good, good at least. It wasn't just two teen girls that were found along that highway. I should clarify, there were nine females in total. Some of them were already linked to the Green River Killer. These two teen girls were kind of in a limbo because, you know, the pattern at the time was it was sex workers. Right. And there were maybe two runaways that I think were later recognized as victims. Yeah, and I don't know... I'm forgetting the age of his youngest victim, but... Young. It was was around that age. Yeah. But... At the same time, I was like, I don't know. Like, these are a lot of bodies. Yeah. He had 48 confirmed victims and 50 more that they were considering. So it was it was on a list of maybes. Right. Right. It's also like, yes, it's possible it was him. It's also like, what does that area look like? Does it happen to be a really accessible yet also well covered hidden area? Right. You know, that catches the eye of that type of person. The relationship between Diana and Bober eventually went sour again. He called her an ungrateful bitch, and she even accused him of being involved in Misty's disappearance. Tenuous, to say the least. Now, she said that because how did he know so much? Like, that is suspicious. So when they get mad at each other, they just say what hurts, you know? If you think a guy's willing to plant evidence... Who knows what he's capable of right. if he's that desperate to be famous for And that. I think her mind was kind of turning at that point, like, maybe the police were right. I don't know. Bober eventually went to jail for 14 months for dealing marijuana, which kept the two of them apart. But he did continue to help Diana in her quest to find out what happened for several years. And eventually Diana began to stop believing in his rhetoric. But he did help on a few things. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Also, not to defend him or whatever, but... You would think he would have then stumbled across the body or something. If he was really involved. If he was absolutely, yeah, if he was involved, Mm -hmm. then it's like, oh, we found her, you know. I think it more likely that if he did plan it, it was because he wanted to be right about the Green River Killer because they Mm -hmm. were just not listening to him about his suspect. Oh, yeah. Five months after Misty's disappearance, the police decided to begin interviewing the two people who were the last to have seen and spoken to Misty. Okay, just let that sit in. Yeah, you don't want to rush it. months. You want to give them time to forget things and talk to each other. And So these people that they hadn't yet interviewed were Reuben Schmidt and Trina Bevan, the girl that was actually with her the night she went missing. Instead, 
they listened to rumors and went to the high school to talk to two girls that weren't even friends with her, but not the actual people involved, right, in seeing her that day. I don't want to hurt the audio equipment, but just I'm screaming very loudly. I know. I. It's just shocking. Five months. They really, truly believed she was a runaway. So what? Even if she was a runaway, <sighs> Trina was the last person to be so with her. So what? Wouldn't you think Trina might know where she Say went? Say child. I know. My God, at least do the mom the favor. If you feel like she's bugging you or you can't trust her, be like throw her a bone and be like, oh, we talked to the girl that was with her last. Nothing came of it. She ran away. I know. Police began to look into Ruben further once Misty's clothes were recovered. They interviewed his boss, Frank Rodriguez, the owner of the rib restaurant where he worked. Frank told the investigator on March 4th, 1993, that Ruben told him he knew where Misty was buried, six miles from where the clothing had been found. When detectives went to interview Ruben again, he ran from them, like literally ran from them. (laughs) Once they caught up with him, they learned that he still stuck to the old story that he told Diana. Trina and Misty had called him for a ride. He declined due to not having gas. Now, when he was asked about the information his boss shared with police, he said, oh, I was lying because he wouldn't stop asking. I needed him off my back. Now, that's when things get even weirder. Ruben goes on to tell police that he suffers from blackouts, an issue he's had his entire life. He actually didn't remember the night of the 17th, the night Misty went missing. His memory was completely blank until the next day, September 18th. Police then asked if he thought it was possible he may have done something to Misty and didn't remember. And he said, I'm not sure. Was he blacking out when they showed up and he started running and he (laughs) thought he was at a gym or something? Maybe. Are you? Mm. Police conducted a polygraph test on Ruben and the results were inconclusive. But not having anything more to hold him on, they let him go. One very interesting thing about this polygraph test that you're just going to (laughs) love was that the police said Ruben seemed to have been trying to make himself go to sleep the entire test, (laughs) that he was in some kind of trance-like state the entire time. That, to me, is a sign of somebody trying to pass it. No, ma'am, he suffers from blackouts. He was blacking (laughs) out. He's proving it. Partially. Despite the inconclusive results, the polygraph trance, and the very weird information about his blackouts, Police were distracted by another lead. Since they were so fixated on this other lead, no one seemed to care that Ruben sold his green 1974 Nova to a wrecking yard. Police interviewed Trina and realized she had not walked home that night like she previously described, but she actually got a ride home from her 23-year-old friend-slash-boyfriend, Michael Reiner. Trina said he was just a friend, but there were other witnesses that claimed the 14-year-old was actually dating him. When offered, Misty declined a ride from them because she didn't like Michael. Maybe it was a gut feeling, or maybe she knew enough about him that she tried to avoid him. Now, while Michael didn't have an official police record, at the age of 16, he was accused of an abduction and rape of an 11-year-old. And this was at knife point. The accusation didn't go anywhere. He was actually cleared of all wrongdoing. One theory police highly considered is that Michael may have returned to pick Misty up after dropping Trina off. The police even set up a sting operation in order to get close to him. 
an undercover cop posed as a car buyer when Reiner was selling his Ford Escort. The car was then purchased and taken in for forensic testing. That's very convenient that that happened. Very. So all these guys are getting rid of their cars, but it makes it convenient to buy the car and look at it. But only Michael's, not Ruben's. As police waited for the forensic testing to be completed, they brought Michael in for questioning. He told police a story very similar from what they got from Trina, that he picked Trina up, drove her home, and that he didn't drive Misty. When asked if he thought Misty was alive and what he thought should happen to the person who harmed her, he decided it was the right time to bring up the accusations against him from when he was 16. He told them he believed that was the only reason the police were interested in talking to him about Misty and reminded them that he had been cleared from that case. Michael was given... What else but a polygraph test? He passed, so police had nothing else to do but clear him and go back to take another look at Ruben. The problem is this time, Ruben's car is no longer available to them because he sold it and they didn't care. So it's in a wrecking yard and it's not something that they can look at. They turned to his 15-year-old roommate, whom Diana previously spoke to, to see if they could get any additional information. James's story was much like what he told Diana, but with a little bit more detail. Misty had called Ruben, which upset 18-year-old Ruben's 13-year-old girlfriend, who stormed off, left his house. James says that once the girlfriend left, Ruben left too, and it wasn't to go after her, but it was to go get Misty. He then went on to theorize that maybe Ruben made a pass at Misty, who everyone knew wasn't interested in him like that. She rebuffed him, and then he did something about it. Or he's mad at a similarly aged girl. And and took it out on another. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ruben's story just didn't add up. He told police he didn't have gas to drive the 16 miles to pick up Misty and take her home and then get back to his house. But he did go on to tell police that the night in question he had that blackout. And during that, he must have driven to his grandmother's house because that's where he woke up the next day. And his grandmother's house was 30 miles away. So how did he not have gas to get her but could drive double? Weird. Interesting. Reuben's grandmother's farm was also six miles outside of Buckley, (gasps) which aligned very closely to what Reuben's boss said. Mm -hmm. Reuben told him Misty's body was six miles away from where her clothes were were found, which was Buckley. So was her body somewhere on that farm? After learning all of this, the police decided to give him another polygraph test. And since he passed, he was cleared. This is despite the blackout, shady story, lack of alibi. And guess what? In 1996, Ruben would be accused of rape by one of Misty's friends, though she recanted and the case was dropped. It's like the same story, different day. Then in 2006, police learned that Ruben's ex, the mother of their children, had a restraining order filed against him. Apparently, he had threatened their lives by telling her he would burn down their house with all of them in it. So lots of suspects. In this one, right? So I said before, they sent Missy's genes to forensic testing and they were analyzed. And what they ended up finding was a hole in the genes above the knee that could have been caused by scissors or a knife, six hairs, and four red paint chips. Police believe the paint chips might actually connect her disappearance to another person of interest, Robert Hickey. Robert Hickey abducted and raped a 15-year-old girl near the Puyallup Fairgrounds in 1993, and he owned a red Camaro. That night, he drove up alongside the teen who was walking, 
propositioned her, attacked her, raped her, and then threw her down a ravine hoping it would kill her. The girl survived and he was arrested and convicted. He did a little bit of time, got out of prison, and attempted to do it again. Like before, he drove up alongside a woman in 2001, attacked her, tried to rape her, but luckily she escaped and he got picked up again. And thanks to Washington's second strike rule, he ended up going back to prison for life. But he was free at the time of Misty's disappearance. And that was before he raped that 15-year-old. So he was interviewed, denied, of course, having anything to do with Misty. And I can only assume the paint chips didn't match the car because no charges were ever filed. The two girls whose bodies were discovered along Highway 410 are said to be victims of a killer known as the High Ho Killer. The moniker comes from the name of the shopping center where both girls were last seen. These two murders were never conclusively linked to the Green River Killer, but it is still a possibility. They were listed as possible victims of his. Others were considered as well. For instance, the Red River Killer or Killers. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever heard that. Um, I didn't, which is weird since I did the Green River Killer case, but there were 50 women listed as potential victims of the Green River Killer. These were women the police couldn't officially link to him, but they thought eh, it's probably likely. Now, on that list were the two girls from Highway 410, as well as Misty, as well as a 16-year-old named Sarah Yarborough from Federal Way, who was, her body was found in 91. The moniker Red River Killer is basically a name... Gary Ridgway's lawyers gave this potential serial killer and 50 victims is a lot. So it is likely there was another killer or there were other killers. And one thing in support of that is the 16 year old found in 91 had DNA on her body and that DNA was not matched to Ridgway. Oh. So there's definitely at, at least, least one, one more killer, yeah. but possibly two. So it's a very messy kind of time frame. There were there was a lot of serial killers out and about. Years later, police also tested Randall Oziger's car, which also happened to be a red Porsche. Bober was adamant this was the guy, and some of his arguments must have resonated with police. But by the time it came to test, the paint chips that had been found on Misty's jeans went missing. Now, Bober says, nope, they tested it. I saw the results. They did match. And yet again, the police screwed the pooch on another part of the case. And I have to agree with him. Now, I don't I don't know if he actually saw the results, but they keep screwing up. Yeah, he's probably right. So this is a tricky case. There all these scenarios seem to have footing. You can you can kind of argue all of them. Right. Was it Misty's older friend who had a thing for her? Was it her friend's boyfriend who had previous accusations of rape? Was it the overly helpful true crime fanatic? Was it the Green River Killer, Robert Hickey, or maybe it was someone else that wasn't even considered? But to this day, we do not know. In May of 2000, Misty was officially declared dead by the Pierce County Medical Examiner. Though there are no remains to bury or cremate, a memorial service was held in her honor. Misty Copsey was 5'8 and weighed 120 pounds. She had blonde hair and green eyes and was last seen wearing a navy blue sweatshirt, baggy jeans with stitching with the legs cuffed at the bottom, and brown suede shoes. She had healed fractures on both forearms due to injuries she received while playing sports. Lots to discuss here. I will say, let's um, kick it off by saying the family was considered suspects early on. Both parents were given a polygraph, both passed. 
but Diana's results were inconclusive when it came to the questioning of the planted evidence. So police are like, she either did it or she knew he did it or she questioned if he did it because that would be inconclusive as well. Do you know if it was planted? Right. And the police is like swaying your opinion. If I was the mother and that is how the police were handling my child's case. Fuck them, first of all. How do you not burn the place down? I mean, to know that they're the only ones that can like legally actually do process things. Yeah, and have, and here's and this have guy, things that can go to trial. This guy that's real wishy-washy. People don't trust him, but he's willing to. I mean, he, he's this at guy, least trying. This guy raised money for the memorial service. He got his hands on the report about the jeans when the police wouldn't give it to her. Do you know what he did? He was he was being held on trial for his pot mm-hmm. possession. He claimed that the genes test results were were part of his argument for his case so that it could be entered as I evidence. I was going to ask how he could have seen them at all. He got it he because access. of that. So, I wow. mean, this is much as he's a pain Put in him the ass. on the detective team. My God. I mean, he asked to. I mean, he's still out out and about and right. he gets, you know, he'll probably listen to this. He, he has criticized other podcasts. Yeah. But, you know, if you are listening, Corey, like, good for you for getting yourself involved. I can can understand where people would get frustrated by him if they're being told they're fucking up and he's showing them. And also, I think he maybe treated her mom inappropriately and should have maybe had a third party. And it's easy to dismiss people if you can put labels on things. So if the police are the ones screwing up left and right... They can step back and go, oh, she has a DUI. Oh, he's he's a felon for pot. Yeah, that does not equate. Well, and I think they did that on purpose to get Absolutely. him out of there. They did set up Absolutely. a scene to get him. Now, here's the thing, though, with him. Corey, you did some good work. But I will say it's obsessive, this right. fixation on Randall. And you'll see when you watch that video. Yeah, I'm excited to see It's that. only five minutes long, too. I definitely say check it out. So he does have valid arguments, though. There right. are some. It's not like he just made that up because he didn't like a guy. Right. He had reasons. Right. The guy knew that that Gary Ridgway or the Green River Killer, let's say Green River Killer, right. was inserting rocks into these women. Oh. That was not a detail that was shared with the media. Wow. So that was like, oh, Corey thought, well, why does he know that? But Corey, why do you? If you're able to convince people to give you information, maybe he could too. Right. So it's a little back and forth, but he knew Yeah, because like everything you can kind of, every part of it, you can talk away. Like you said, the suspects, the evidence. Right. Um. And, and, and you have a mom who's maybe desperate to not be told, sit on your hands for a month. Yeah, she'll take so, whatever she okay, can get. okay, I guess I'll just get some clothes from her room and go put them somewhere. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing or saying that she actually did that, but just that I would get to that point yeah. easily. I know. Be like, oh, look, I found things. Now, that, uh, now can we look at it seriously? And for those of you who are wondering, Gary Ridgway, who wa- was noted as the Green River Killer, and he is in prison as the Green River Killer. He has an alibi for September 17th, 92. He was actually working, painting a truck in Tequila, Washington, Mm. which is a bit of a drive. Right. So I think we can say he didn't do it. And, you know, with the amount of shady characters already, let alone the fact that she was just a child walking. So even if you don't have a list of these suspicious characters, she was walking outside at night. I think Hickey, like, I think Hickey, and it could have been literally anyone. I think Hickey is a good suspect. Yeah. It was very similar age, and yeah. the tactic of tearing their clothes, like her jeans were tore. Right. Um. I think that that is a possibility, but there definitely 
are other serial killers that right. haven't been caught yet. And that were a lot of bodies that weren't tied to Gary Ridgeway. So it and could again, be someone else. Like the last case, there could be a mountain of evidence that even, uh, you know, unofficial investigator man doesn't have access to that they just can't. It just dead ends. Yep. Yep, exactly. Um, There's so much. But we it don't is hard know. because, you know, there are, I've definitely, you know, I've said on this a few times where there are cases where I stop myself because I I want to write that person or I want to call that person or I want to be like, what's the deal with this? And you hope that you could help to make something happen. Right. And you but you have so to step back. On it. And like you said, it reminded you of, of another character we've encountered in our life um, going back a couple years now to the Crater in Blue episode. Uh, where a family member mentioned a person being involved, like, very intensely. And that person has even reached out to us and, like, is trying to convince us of what the actual murder was and yeah. and all of that. And it's just, like... I see them in the can... same realm, but I, Corey, to me, is a little more... Legitimate. Legitimate. Yeah, than, for yeah. sure. But it is just, like, you know, I've definitely learned intensity can be mistaken as mania or sure. um you know being a wackadoo or whatever and so it's like it is hard when you're like that passionate well, and intense that you're like you gotta listen to me i think the one thing that really set diana off with him too is when they found the clothes he was like a jubilant child he was so oh. excited and laughing and here she's seeing evidence that her daughter is dead right like you don't expect and your I, daughter's alive after that and i get that I I get why someone who's trying to put a puzzle to get together is found excited. a major piece of it, and you'd be like, "Yes, that's we're getting like, somewhere." That's like funeral directors, man. They can't show you, that. Yeah, you have exactly. To train yourself to so, not show that. Exactly. So it's like I can understand that emotion of like, "Oh my god, we've got some information," but yeah, not being able to recognize the situation you're in yeah. to like step back. It's like poor social skills and prioritizing the wrong things right. i think now can we talk about how crazy the similarities are here though so weird. When jeremy's mom is named diane misty's is they diana were, they're the same age same age they i mean they both made fairs. phone calls to their mom right before both disappeared from fairs that was the last place they were pretty much seen they um obviously had a ton of suspects in each at the right. same time there were a lot of rumors smaller town where everyone knows what's going on but the police aren't doing anything. like to me they're both very very solvable and i just get yeah. the feeling we're never gonna know because as that is i think it would have been solvable if the alert had gone immediately and action had been taken immediately. And you know and they said that about jeremy's they actually the police said had amber alerts been a thing we would have put an amber alert out and it's like would mm. you though would you i don't mm. think you would have <laughs> That's nice to say now so that you don't have a lawsuit. And, you know, there are a lot of mistakes with Misty's. I will say in recent years, it has been better. I think it was 2017. They actually did this cool thing where they used Twitter to help get her case out. So oh, what they okay. did was they had her take it over for the week. Oh. And she was tweeting about who she was and what happened to her to generate public How interest. interesting. And, like, her photos and everything. That's a really cool way to do yeah. that. Yeah. So I feel like... You know, it changed hands three times. I think there were three different right. chiefs, tons of detectives. So right. there aren't they aren't all bad, but you're obviously there's only so much you can do when people did shitty work in the first yeah. place. And again, you know, some people might argue, oh, this is over 30 years old. Who's going to know? Who's going to say? Who knows anything? And it's like these people were all young, all parties involved. And so it's like that, yeah, they're that could age. be somebody's uncle they're slightly older than us yeah or i still remember shit from that age very vividly yeah. 
So like, oh, you've overheard your uncle mention something about that time or you know something weird about a property. Like that's the whole reason because it's not about having mm-hmm. that. And maybe we've done those cases where the person just cracks. They don't want to carry the weight yep. of that guilt anymore. So it's like pounding that to be like people still care. People still care. Maybe that'll make them crack. Maybe someone will go, that's weird. I remember at that time this happened in our family or to my friend or whatever. And so it's like it's just like it just might be something. It's and I hope never it worth not talking about because it might lead to something. And it might be. And we found this guy and he killed a bunch of people. Maybe he's also the grocery store guy. You know, so yep. it's like there's just so, so much that can be brought to light by just speaking people up. speaking up. And on that note, if anyone has information about Misty Copsey, you're asked to contact the Puyallup Police Department tip line at 253-770-3343. And if there's any information about the unsolved cases of Kim DeLong and Anna Chibutnoy, you're asked to call the King County Police Department at 206-296-3311. That's how I learned to sign uh, the river. And I will sail my vessel <laughs> till the river runs dry. That's some real Benton County action, <laughs> yeah, was, if okay. not Lane. Here we go. <laughs> Probably more Lane. <laughs> I spent every year from probably the first grade till my senior year of high school. What? It's so frightening. <laughs> In the social sphere. sphere. Fuck. Just come hit me. <laughs> Get a stick. <laughs> Red lions, like, give me anxiety, too. Ignore them. I. Okay. They are not your boss. They are AI trying to take over. It's very hard. Can I turn it off? She's, she's seen The Matrix recently. I have watched The Matrix. <laughs> Don't buy into the Red Lines. There are a few sightings that alluded to these scenarios. I'm sorry to stop you again. What? I think at the end of that, <laughs> in that last passage, you might want to say... Went missing instead of was missing. Oh, did I? I wrote went. Well, yeah. You know me. I don't know hey, what you know, I write. Hey, you play a little jazz with that script. <laughs> <laughs> She's a jazz girl. I do a little skitty skit. Both Steinhoff men were questioned by police and were considered persons of interest. However, neither became an official suspect. So, an official. <laughs> <laughs> this wasn't the last time Steri. Steri- <laughs> Ma'am, stop changing his name. I'm having real trouble with my asses. He has to give up his life to kill the piece of Voldemort that lives inside of him. So he goes to his death, he gets killed, and then he comes back to life. And then he kills Voldemort. Are you telling me that Harry Potter is just the story of Jesus? Is that what I'm learning right now? It's the same as Jesus. Yeah, I mean. People love that guy. If you look at my Facebook, it says your religion. Mine is the sacred books of Harry Potter. So, <laughs> I'm gonna need a minute. Keep going with your story. Okay. I'm Huey Lewis in the news and color. I mean, and two Misties in one it's class. It's a huge fair, though. What? I went to that. My fair God, in what year is this? Ninety-two. Oh yeah. my God! Ooh, <laughs> yeah. I set you up. Huge in seventh grade. This helped him refine his. Sur- this helped him. 
Omo. Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. <laughs> Please put that in. <laughs>